You're listening to the Brookside Church Sermon Podcast. We are a progressive and inclusive community of faith in the heart of Morris County, New Jersey, reminding everyone that they are the beloved child of God. For more information, visit us online at brooksidechurch.org. Thanks, Pat. Now, Lois and I are going to read, and I'll turn my mic off so I don't overpower you. Uh, We're going to read from Romans 1, verses 16 through uh, chapter 2, verse 4. um, And we're going to read it together uh, so that you can sort of see the contrast of passages here. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For it is the righteousness of God is revealed through faith, for faith, as it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Ever since creation of the world, God's eternal power and divine nature Invisible as though they are, have been understood and seen through the things God has made. So they are without excuse, for though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being or birds or four-footed animals, or reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And for this reason, God gave them up to the degrading passions. Their women exchanged natural intercourse for for unnatural, And in the same way, also men, giving up natural intercourse with women, were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to the debased mind and to things that should not be done. They were filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, covetedness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, Craftiness, they are gossips, slanderers, God haters, insolent, haughty, boastful. Wow, it's a list, right? Right, I'm exhausted. <laughs> you see, boastful. Where am I here? Boastful. Inventors of evil, rebellious towards parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They knew not God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. Yet they did not only do them, but even applauded themselves for practicing them. Therefore, you have no excuse. Whoever you are, when you judge others, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. You say, we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is in accordance with truth. 
Do you imagine, whoever you are, that when you judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Beloved, our prayer this morning is a song. A lot of times when we pray, we close our eyes and bow our heads, but you don't have to do that this morning. You want to keep your eyes open, you can. And I'm going to sing this little song twice as our prayer this morning. It comes directly from these words from the book of Romans. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance, oh God. Knowing that you love us no matter what. want to love you too. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance, oh God, knowing that you love us no matter what we do, makes us want to love you. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance, oh God, knowing that you love us no matter what we do. It makes us want to love you too. It's your kindness leads us to repentance, oh God, knowing that you love no matter what we do, makes us want to love you too. So um, this morning, as we get started, I, I want to tell you, I, I often struggle as a pastor trying to figure out what my role is. I mean, sometimes I'm uh, just, if you think in general, I'm the, the administrator in chief, I'm the personnel person in chief, I'm the head of public relations, right? I'm the music person in chief, even though I'm, not, I'm far outmatched with Amy, right? Um, 
And then I'm supposed to preach and do pastoral care, right? And do maybe public advocacy work. I'm supposed to be the head missionary. I mean, can you imagine all the different roles that I play? And this morning, I've really been challenged, not just with all of those roles, but really asking what my role as a preacher is. So as a preacher, am I supposed to be an entertainer? Am I supposed to be a poet? Am I supposed to be an exceptional writer? Uh, maybe I'm supposed to be good at presenting. Uh, maybe I'm supposed to be an excellent scholar. Uh, but today, uh, I want to be a teacher. And so we're going to go through a really important, important, hard to sort of get at theological issue here at the heart of a very important theological book, the book of Romans. And if we had time, we could go through and unpack Romans, we could unpack Galatians, we could unpack the story of the New Testament. And most of the time, even with scholars, sometimes the context is so forgotten that we get stuck in the weeds, we don't realize there's a whole story going on here. And we're supposed to sort of know the story before we even pick up the text and start to read it. Um, and we're not going to get all of that today, but we're going to do some of it. But before we get into it and I do some teaching, since I'm going to do teaching more or less this morning, I figured it would be good for me to go ahead and start with a poem. So this poem is from uh, Naomi Shahib Nye, and she wrote this a few years ago, and it's titled Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in the weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so that you know how desolate that landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride the ride thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside you, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must Wake up with sorrow. You must speak it until your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it's only kindness that makes sense anymore and only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to gaze at bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for. And then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. Kindness as the deepest thing. Sorrow as the other deepest thing. This morning, that's where I want to start. I want to start by this notion that deep inside of us, maybe the deepest part of us, there's this relationship between kindness and sorrow that without kindness, sorrow is not really sorrow, but maybe just anger. And without sorrow, maybe kindness is not really kindness. Maybe it's just nice. But the deep truth at the heart of the gospel, at the heart of creation, at the heart of who we are, is this 
deep yearning for God's kindness, God's radical kindness, the deepest thing to come out. So let's break away from the poem just for a minute and I want to do something lighthearted with you and I hope that I don't take too much time this morning because we've got a lot to cover. But I'm going to start with a lighthearted uh, experiment with you, an icebreaker maybe. Um, And I'm going to give you a few rules or habits of speech and I want to see if you can recognize whose voice you hear in them. This is supposed to be lighthearted. Rule number one, add very or really a multiple of two or three times to any single adjective. For example, they are really, really, really bad people. Rule number two, use the word not before an adjective or even use it in combination with rule one. For example, they are bad people. They are really, really, really not good people. Okay, rule three. Reference a number of people, for example. I have heard from multiple sources, hundreds of sources, the bad things that they have done. My friend, who happens to be very successful, has told me how bad they are. Rule four. Add, I don't know, but that's just what they're telling me. For example, I have heard from hundreds of sources how really, really bad they are. I don't know, but that's what they're telling me. Rule five, in your statement with, believe me, I have heard how really, really not good they are. Believe me. What do you think? Is this a voice you recognize? Or maybe rule six through ten would be, Uh, to make a list of people that should be excluded and then tell the world why you're their biggest supporter. Blame them for all the world's problems and then claim that by excluding them, we will be making ourselves great. Does that help you know whose voice I'm talking about here? And what about now? Is Is this a voice that you recognize? If not, how about we add maybe some racism, some homophobia, some old school bigotry, misogyny, maybe some corruption? Or what if we just add in some support of those so-called Christians? Thank God we're not like them, right? I mean, am I, am I wrong? Right? Is there not this feeling? Thank God I'm not like them. I mean, give yourself a pat on the back, right? I mean, since we've all got our stuff together, I mean, we're not like them at all, are we? Those so-called Christians, Right? We accept everybody here, right? I mean, we're not judgmental at all, not us, right? Isn't it great to be one of the good guys? Okay, so now we're going to play a second game. How many people know what I just did there? I used a a rhetoric, a rhetorical uh, strategy of someone who everyone would recognize and I used it to stir up your emotions to allow you to give yourself a pat on the back and then to condemn you for it without telling you you were condemned it's kind of like a jujitsu move right I set up a target and then I moved it out of the way so you could hurt yourself now you can imagine members of a church a hundred years from now or someone who's not been watching the news and trying to figure out who I'm talking about. This 
challenge that we have in the passage that we read today that's part of the problem is that we're not in the context. People who are not in the moment, who are not paying attention, who have not been watching the news, who are not aware of the language and the conversations that people have. People who don't know what's going on. It's hard to get a sense of what's going on if you're not in the middle of the context. I know how many of you have been spiritually formed in a church that doesn't care too much for the Apostle Paul. There are lots of reasons to be turned off by the Pauline text in our Bible. And most, mostly, as I've said before, that's out of the need to avoid landmines. But today, I'm going to make a suggestion that most of what people know about Paul is actually wrong. And instead, I want us to do what we did last week, which is to take a deep dive and see if there's something redeeming here. I hope that we'll hear the divine calling for us to be a more repentant, a more more loving, a more welcoming people. One that witnesses to the deepest thing inside us, right? The most, the thing that uh, the poet Naomi Nye put, the radical kindness of God, the deepest thing. This passage from Romans that you heard me read. Uh, It's in the context of what Lois and I read together. But this passage from Roman is probably one of the most quoted by Christians as evidence of what the Bible says about homosexuality. Except it doesn't talk about homosexual love at all. It talks about passions. It talks about desires. It talks about what it calls natural and unnatural. And there's a lot that we can deal with this morning if we wanted to get into it. But I think it would be hard to get the context if we're focusing on specifics. We would get lost in the weeds. Rather than do all that, I want to help you see the bigger picture. So Romans, like all the the letters of the Apostle Paul, was written to most of the prominent founders of Christianity. Paul was was like the, the celebrity of the early church, right? He wrote all the letters. Most of the letters are the earliest part of the New Testament that we have. The Gospels came after the letters of Paul. And one of the things that we don't notice because we've not studied it, we've not read it together, we've not really thought through it together, is there's division in the church. That's the heart of all the stories. The Apostle Paul is writing letters to broken people, to broken churches. And because we don't understand the the context, maybe we miss it. And if we had the time, I would love to sit down with you and read the book of Acts together. And we could study how this division is not just between the Gentiles of the world and the Jewish people. And within Judaism, all the different types of groups there are in Judaism. And then within the church and all the different types of Christians who are all at the time Jewish. And how they're fighting with each other about various different things. And how that's not just evident in the, in the illustrated in the crisis and the conflict that's in the churches, in the congregations, in every one of them. It's also evident in the arguments between the founders. If you were to look at Acts 15, here are a few people. Everybody nod your head if you know these names. There's Paul. There's Peter. And then there's the brother of Jesus. His name was James. And there's this story that's told. We heard just last week in Acts that Peter was told not to be exclusive, not to leave out the Gentiles, not to leave out those non-Jewish folks, that God had welcomed them all in. Then later we hear Paul come up and rebuke Peter because Peter at the dinner table has been separating himself and won't eat with those filthy Gentiles. Paul, who used to be uh, quite an oppressive person who had actually got legal writings from the Roman government to go out and actually kill people who were Christians. 
And he was killing the Christians because he thought that the Christians were actually, they, they were damaging the reputation of Judaism. They were making Judaism an unclean, a profane religion. So Paul's going out and killing these people, and then he has this conversion. He has this moment where his heart is changed. He hears the voice of God saying, why are you persecuting me? And then we have the story. Paul goes to Peter and then condemns Peter because Peter is sitting at the table with the Jews and excluding all the Gentiles. That Peter had heard the voice of God tell him to welcome everyone, and Paul was the one Paul was the one who advocated for being a more inclusive community. That's Paul. So Paul is now the founder of all these different churches all around the area, right? All in the different areas. He's never been to Rome, and he's writing this letter to the Roman church at the time. He'd never been to Rome yet. And Rome, the church in Rome was this extremely divided community. And one of the things it's divided over is particularly this relationship between the Jewish folks and the folks who are not Jewish who have been welcomed in, right? That's a, that's a question that's in all one of the gospels, or all the one of the letters of Paul. And if we had read it in the Gentile, in, in Galatians, if we had studied the book of Galatians, we would understand why a little bit. The story goes that the brother James, of, brother of Jesus James, was uh, going around to all these different places and telling the Gentiles that they didn't belong in there, that they were second-class citizens, and that if they wanted to become a Christian, they actually had to become Jewish. And in order to become Jewish, they had to be circumcised. And even then, they still would not be first-class citizens because God had come to the Jews. That's the story of James, right? And James has these factions all over in Christianity. And so you find in these churches these debate between Paul and James. Most of us, when we read texts like Galatians or 1 Corinthians or Romans, we don't have that story in our mind. We don't realize that the churches are fighting with each other. They're broken with each other. There's this, this, this shattering that's happening in the church, this movement following Jesus that's happening because Paul and James are at odds with each other because Paul says everyone is welcome, and James says not if you're not Jewish. And Peter is not really sure where he is. If you hear that context and then you open a book like Romans and you see that in verse 16, chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, the gospel is for everyone, first to the Jew and then to all the rest of the world, for everyone. Then you realize Paul's got an agenda here. And if you read over later into the rest of Romans, you start hearing all kinds of things about how Romans 5, 8, that in our sinfulness, God has come to all of us because all of us are to blame. Then you hear Romans 8 about how all creation is groaning for the children of God to come unfold. But many of us have missed all of that from Paul because we have passages like the one that we read today that we're not really sure how that, that doesn't sound like the same person. You saw me read off that litany of all those wickedness things of all the wicked people, Right? So, I'm going to teach you jujitsu this morning. So, what I want to do is ask you if you'll get your Bibles, um, and rather than me spend more time, I'm actually going to ask you to open your Bibles to page 133, and I'm going to ask you to do something that you're probably going to think is sacrilegious. Um, but uh, if you're if you're willing to follow along with me, I promise uh, it's okay. Um, 
And Lois, if you don't mind, uh, help me. We'll pass around, pass around pencils. And I'm going to actually ask you. I'm going to actually ask you to write in your Bibles. And I'm going to ask you to write in your Bibles because, <laughs> oh my gosh, right? How do you? How can you? How can you justify writing? I mean, is it that desecrating this book? Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing that the you know all those verse numbers those weren't in the original text, all those headings those weren't in the original text, and there may be things that should be there that are not there. So, uh, for those of you who are uh, uh, lovers of Bibles and books, and you are afraid to do this, then don't do it. But if you can just be so courageous with me, this is what I want to ask you to do. See if you can find. Uh, chapter 1, so it's page 133 in the back, so not in the front, sorry. And there's, there's two different numbers, right? two different sets of page numbers. Sorry, I, I forgot about that. It's in the back. We're looking at Romans. Romans chapter 1. And see if you can find verse 16. You, you got it, then uh, you can just look up at me. See if you, if you find it, put your finger on it. Once you have an understanding of the larger situation of the story, you can start to see things. You ever found verse 16? You see how verse 16 and 17 go together? And I don't even have mine open yet. Um, you see how verse 16 and 17 are together, right? And then 18 starts a new passage, right? Starts a new section. I want to invite you, and I think this would be good because I think it would be good if anyone else were to walk into our church and then sit down in the pews and then open up the Bible to this page, they would see we've read it together. Next to verse 18, over in the margin on the left, I want you to make a big opening quotation mark. Big opening quotation mark. And follow it all the way down to the end of chapter 1. Right over to the right of where that big number two is. Just above the number two at the end of the word where it says practice them. Does everybody see that? Put a closing quotation mark. Is everybody following me here? Is this okay? All right. And so um, if you're now, if you wanted to go, that wasn't too bad, right? It wasn't too bad. So now if you want to be a little bit bolder, then here's what you could do. Put above your quotation mark, maybe up in the corner somewhere, some kind of question mark that looks readable. And then if you want to, if you, if you want to be a little bit bolder, then right next to the, the passage, uh, therefore you have no excuse, whoever you are, chapter 2, verse 1, just put a star next to that. Yeah, a star. So what you've done now is you have now taken on the role that I told you a few weeks ago that we have as a congregation, which is that this is like a tree, right? And this is the center of the tree, but we're the ones who are reading it together, right? And we're now asking ourselves, do we understand the story enough that we can put our lives in it? So now you've become part of the scribes, right, who are writing the text together. I want to read through you... Um, uh, how this works. This is uh, the, the passage that you just uh, put a quotation mark around. 
there are, is a lot of scholarship, especially over the last several decades, that have really wrestled with Paul because the larger story that I told you has been mostly excluded from biblical scholarship up until recently. And the reason it was excluded is because people had their theology mostly built around the book of Romans. Right? And so they read Romans in a particular way that didn't make sense as a letter, but made sense in the form of theology. And then they read the story after that. But when we started, especially after the Holocaust, and we started really wrestling with anti-Semitism, then scholars in the church really started asking themselves, we don't really know who this person Paul is. By the way, how many of you heard in Sunday school that Paul changed his name to Saul? Anybody hear that? Or that... Right? Saul named, changed his name to Paul. Okay? Or, or that um, Kai, what's his name? Kephas changed his name to Peter. Right? So, uh, so what, that's one of the examples of the truth is that these people were like, if you ever met somebody, like I have a friend named Ephraim. But in school, everybody called him Ephraim. Why? Well, because he had a Spanish name and an English name. Why? Because that's what happens in multicultural contexts. Right? So scholars started to really wrestle with this and make sense of it. Peter never changed his name. Paul never changed his name. He was always Rabbi Saul, right? But when you write in Greek, you don't write Saul, you write Paul. By the way, if you didn't know this, there was no guy named James. His name was actually Jacob, right? Who decided that James is how you translate the Hebrew word Jacob into English? Guess. Anybody want to guess? King James, <laughs> right? So, so there's a whole lot lost here, right? And scholars have started really to wrestle with and get a better sense of who Paul is. And when they do, they start to see things like this. And so recently, there's this notion in, of Greek rhetoric that's come out called presopopoesis. Poesis. Presopopoesis, which is a, a very complicated way of saying Paul's words here are not Paul's words. Paul is actually reading from a book called The Wisdom of Solomon and a combination of some other books like the Book of Jubilees, right? And so these other books that we don't read and we weren't in the context of the early church and we weren't in the midst of a crisis church that had debates and arguments sort of like what the church is going through today in many different ways. And if we weren't in that context, we would not have heard those words as if they were someone else's words. We would have heard them. We hear them as if they're Paul's. But what Paul is actually doing here is Paul is setting them up. It's like a sting operation. He's reading through these phases like I did at the beginning, getting everyone to nod their head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when you get to the end of it, everybody that's patting their back and hands on their back, right? Aren't we the best people? We're not like them. And Paul says, how dare you? Don't you know you're just as bad as everybody else that you condemn because you're so judgmental. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's that deep kindness, that sorrow and kindness that we're able to empathize with each other and see what each other are going through. We're able to understand each other. That's what the gospel is about. That's what Jesus was teaching. But if we're still hung up on this trying to decide who's in and who's out, who's us and who's them, then we've abandoned the gospel. We've abandoned the teachings of Jesus. We've abandoned the whole thing that Paul's doing. And so by the time that you get to the end, you'll notice if you look in your Bibles, the, the, there is the, this them, right? Does everybody see the words in the quotations that says them? 
them, 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 these, 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 they, 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 right? And then look in chapter 2, verse 1. What does it say? You. Right? You. Now, I'm going to end real quick with something I've been wrestling with all week. And I still wrestle with this, so I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm over it now. But I, I, I knew I was going to be preaching this text, and part of why I'm doing it off the cuff right now is because I, even writing it, I could not finish. I spent hours yesterday trying to figure out how I was going to do this, and I was talking with Lois on Thursday, and by the time we were done, we were in tears in my office. Because the, there are things in my life I, am, I, have, I have deep hatred. I do. There are times in my life when I just want to smash things. And those of you that know I'm a pacifist, you know that the re- part of the reason that I am is because if I tell you that I'm a pacifist in public, then I have to make sure that I act like that. So I'm asking you to keep me in check. But on Tuesday, when the reports came out about the priests in Pennsylvania, and I should not have read the reports because I had nightmares. And what I want to do is I want to say, how dare those people, those darn Catholics, those idiot priests, right? And then part of me says, oh, I don't even want to be a Christian anymore. And when I was talking with Lois on Thursday in the office, I was reminded I'm supposed to preach this passage on kindness. And I know the whole rhetoric. I know how it works. And I know that the passage is telling me I'm supposed to not be judgmental. And I'm like, how, how can you not be judgmental? How can you not claim what's right and wrong? And not only that, how can I continue to be a pastor in a world where religious leaders inside of Christianity use their faith as a way of manipulating and abusing people? Particularly some of the most vulnerable people. There's one story, and since there's not any children in here, I'll tell it. Of a boy who was afraid that his mom was going to go to hell because she couldn't go to church. So he went to see the priest, asking what he could do. And the priest told him, well, you should ask for forgiveness from God. And then continue to manipulate this boy into doing things that no one should ever have to experience. The use of religion to cause abuse. How can I not want to say something about that? How can I want to continue to be a pastor in the midst of a world that has this kind of thing? And then I look at Paul and I'm like, how dare you, Paul, tell me I'm not supposed to be judgmental. And then there's this faithful guy I once fell in love with. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he lived during the Holocaust. And he was a priest, or a, a preacher. He was a theologian during the time of Nazi Germany. And he was a spy. And he joined uh, some stuff with the conversations with the World Council of Churches. And he went to them. And he was trying to tell them the church in Germany is not the church of Germany. The Nazi church, they have forsaken the real church. We're the real church. They call themselves the Confessing Church. They wrote the Barman Declaration. If you're a, a Presbyterian or a Lutheran, you could just open your books in their creeds and see that's listed as part of their now, the creed of their churches. Bonhoeffer wrote something I always find quite profound. Instead of throwing rocks at the other church and saying, we're the real Christians, they're not, what Bonhoeffer did is said, 
I'm as complicit in the sin as they are. In his book, Ethics, he writes, he says, The church confesses that she has not proclaimed often or clearly enough the message of Jesus. She confesses she's been timid, evasive. That she's often been untrue in her office to guard and comfort. And through this, she has often denied the outcast and despised the compassion which she owes them. She was silent when she should have cried out because the blood of the innocent was crying aloud to heaven. What we could do as a church is we could borrow what Paul did, right? The, this passage that's been used to tell homosexuals that they're horrible, right? Or that they're unchristian. When the ver- those passages weren't even Paul's letters. We could borrow that rhetoric and then call it our own and then start smashing idols, right? And going over to churches and telling priests that they don't belong in the pulpit, right? Or we could, as a congregation, do what I think Bonhoeffer's teaching us, what I think Paul is asking us to do. We just own it. This is not the Catholic Church's problem. This is our problem. Have we, as a congregation, dealt with sexual abuse? Have we had conversations with our children? Have we educated ourselves? Have we figured out how to handle this? In a way? Are we still afraid to talk about sexuality to the point that we don't even know what to do with it? Right? We could easily just shake our heads and say, yeah, we're not one of them. But yes, we are. Yes, we are. We're part of a religious establishment that still uses shame to manipulate people. So I want to end this morning with asking us if we could recognize that relationship between kindness and sorrow as the place for us to start. God is so kind with us and God welcomes all of us that instead of saying that we're not like everybody else, we're better than everybody else. We just own it. There's nothing wrong with saying God is kind enough. I'm not afraid of judgment. I can make things different. That's what repentance looks like. That's why kindness is where repentance starts. Because we know we're not afraid of God's judgment. What we're afraid of are children who are not protected. What we're afraid of are people who walk around feeling shamed and don't have a safe place to go. What we're afraid of is God asking us to do something to protect people who are most in need and us not having done it. So I want to just end with that. When I hear that verse say, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. So this passage that's supposed to say a lot now not only doesn't say very much, but the weight should be put in a place that we have failed to pay attention to because we've been so busy telling people they don't belong in the church, we didn't know how to be church together. I know that went a little bit long this morning, but I'm still not sure I feel very comfortable as a pastor coming to church on Sunday morning after a week of listening about thousands and thousands of children who have been manipulated by the church. And I think we can do something about it. Not by condemning Catholics, but by doing the kind of work that we've been called to do, which is getting our story straight, figuring out how to welcome people, learning, listening. Gracious God, we're here to become a welcoming place, a place that understands kindness. Pray that you would teach us to be a people that can turn around to the horrors of the world and like Jesus did, like Bonhoeffer did. 
allow ourselves to enter into it as a people who are willing to let change become a part of who we are that we can work to care for those who need it the most.